1: This is a crowd podcast.
2: Harry Truman. Doris Day.
1: That's it, Doris Day.
2: That's where we are.
1: Hello, and welcome to episode two of We Didn't Start the Fire. The podcast that explores post-war history and the reasons why the world is like the way it is today. All done through the lyrics of our number one smash hit from the legend that is Billy Joel. He wrote that song, Tom Fordyce.
2: He knew what he was doing, Katie. He's our mad professor.
1: He is. He's setting us our homework. He is our Sherpa of pop culture just because he's written this crazy song that talks about everything from Harry Truman to birth control to Watergate to punk rock and then some.
2: I love this adventure, Katie. I was going to say you never know where it's going to go next. Well, you do if you sing the song all the time like we do, Yeah. but it's the jump cuts.
1: It's the jump cuts. Yeah. There's no rhyme or reason. It's almost like a, a crazy dream that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Just images come floating in and floating out again. And before you know it, you kind of have an understanding of the history of the entire universe.
2: Nuts, isn't it? So Doris Day today, my knowledge of Doris Day, KT, as with many things in my life, uh, comes down to an 80s pop hit. Cue, finger clicks. You take the grey skies out of my way. You make the sun champ brighter than Doris Day.
1: Ooh! Oh, my gosh. So this is a little bit of wham you're laying on us here. A little bit here. of wham.
2: 84, I think, or maybe 85. But that was my first reference, the first time I ever heard the name Doris Day. How about you? Uh,
1: Well, yes, I did enjoy the oeuvre of George Michael and Andrew Ridgely. However... I had a little bit more awareness of the world than you did, Tom.
2: I think you probably did, yeah.
1: I did. And uh, I mean, I do have a few years on you. Let's 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 not uh slice and dice that one too carefully. But um, yeah, no, growing up in America, you have this idea that Doris Day is sunshine and buttercups and uh, cuteness, sweetness and light, and um, beyond her being a fabulous singer and oh so gosh darn wholesome i realize i don't know that much about her other than all those great 60s films that she was in with the the likes of rock hudson so that is why we've wheeled in somebody pretty special to help us out
2: yes we have katie on every single episode of this show as katie and i go on our grand adventure we have someone much cleverer than us to hold our hands and today that is dr tamar jeffers mcdonald hollywood historian head of school of arts and reader in film studies at the university of kent hey tamar how are you
3: i'm very good thank you very excited to get on this adventure
1: oh good good okay so first of all let's deal with this whole virgin on steroids idea that i have about <laughs> doris day is this correct mm,
3: no no <laughs> all right no, sorry Shut the whole down. Thing about her being. Shot um, Wholesome. That's going to go out the window. This journey is going to go dark. It's going to go dark fast. Nice. <laughs> dark. Um, I
1: just think about Platinum Blonde. Uh, I think about her bright pink lipstick. I think about her soft, uh, swoony, croony, velvety voice. But um, let's look into the darkness a little bit. How did she start
3: off? She started off as a big band singer. So the whole Doris Day was a virgin thing. It's difficult to be a virgin when you're on the the road with an all-male orchestra at the age of 17, (laughs) married by 18, divorced by 19. You've got a kid, you've got a new husband. Your first husband brutalised you. Your third husband embezzled all your money. Your fourth husband embezzled what was left. So it's a dark American tragedy, not a kind of wholesome buttercup story, I'm afraid.
2: I mean, that is darkness. That's a very dark start to this week's episode. I was interested, Tamar, in the fact that so Doris Day, it's a great name, a great all-American name. It's a great name, crucially, for Billy Joel to rhyme as well. But she's not shes not born Doris Day.
3: No, she's Doris Marianne Kapelhoff, which is a bit more difficult to rhyme. You can imagine him trying to fit that one into the lyrics.
2: If she keeps her original name, I'm not sure she's making this song.
3: <laughs> the reason she changed it was they couldn't get it on a marquee. It was too long for the, the marquee they had at the club she was working on. So she used to sing a song called Day After Day. And they said well what about doris Day? And she said no it's corny it sounds like i'm going to do a dance with doves or something it sounds like a stripper name <laughs> but it, it worked so they kept it but i think they like the alliteration and also because she's so blonde there's the kind of the sunshininess and the energy one of the the quotes i really like when she was starting out was that vitamins took doris rather than doris took vitamins because she was so full of pep and vim and energy and bounce and vigor that you, know, you could imagine poor old magnesium wanting to take a bit of Doris to perk up a bit in the mornings. <laughs> but she she does look like sunshine. She does look like daytime. How did she end up as a big band singer?
1: Did she start off just always singing a happy tune?
3: Well, this is where the darkness comes in again. Her life is actually one series of traumas and, and tragedies after another, and then resilience and bounce and recovery and then another tragedy. So she wanted to be a dancer. And she was very gifted as a a young girl and she was dancing, I think even at the age of 10, she was doing exhibition dances. And then when she was about 14, 15, she was coming home from a a late night exhibition dance and their car was hit by a train on a level crossing and everybody in the car survived, but her leg was broken really, really badly. And she was told she wouldn't dance again. And they didn't think she would walk again for a while. So while she was recovering, she listened to the radio and she taught herself to sing just by listening to um, the great 40s singers like Ella Fitzgerald. She particularly liked Fitzgerald, the way she sounded so intimate when she sang. And um, she was so good that her mother, who um, was kind of a real key champion, um, started doing extra laundry and taking in washing and stuff to pay for singing lessons. And so Doris had singing lessons with a woman called Grace Rain, who said, you are good enough to sing on the radio. And she got a radio start. And that eventually became working with, um, first of all, Bing Crosby's brother, Bob Crosby and his Bobcats, and then with Les Brown and his band of renown.
2: Great names.
3: <laughs> yeah. But uh, as a as a band singer, you've got to know that you are not the important person. The, the important thing there is not to hear singing. The important thing is to have music that you dance to. And so she learned very quickly that you're there to accompany the tune. You're not there to show off. And I think if you listen to her early recordings, you can listen, you can hear. She's got a very unstructured voice. She's got a very um, natural voice, quite low not the Doris Day we think of when we're thinking of something like Move Over Darling. I think the the breathiness, if you can imagine that song, which eerily and, and rather ickily her son wrote for her. Oi <laughs> oi. Yeah, I know quite thank that Freud. Um <laughs> her voice is is quite high in that one. But when she starts out, and before she'd had major singing lessons, it's very husky. And um somebody called her a blonde with a brunette voice, which I quite like.
1: oh, that's so great. Is't that nice yeah? I'm wondering about what was her day-to-day life like? Was it very lonely for her on the road or like what sort of defenses did she have to build up or you know was she kind of a hard person because of this experience? no
3: I, I think she wasn't a hard person. I think she got I think she was lonely and I think she really did miss the company of other women because it was an all-male orchestra all the time. And she also they weren't prepared for a girl singer. Even though most of the big bands had girl singers, she was changing into her outfit in the ladies' toilets in the in the club they were playing in. There were no dressing rooms, or if there were, they were all men. So she would take her little dress and go off and put it on, and then she'd change back at the end of the night. And one of the guys would drive her home. And so she's still living with her her mom and probably sleeping all day and then going out and singing all night. One one time, I was really lucky enough to go to the the, the library um, and the archives at the. The academy in Los Angeles and I saw some of her letters which she'd written years later and um she couldn't spell it was kind of heartbreaking she spelled night n-i-t-e like night in a nightclub but she left school at 14 she never had proper schooling so uh, I think she kind of felt a bit at a disadvantage there
2: the words pep and vim I mean what magnificently underused attributes they are the world would be a better place Katie if there was more pep and vim I think is it the pep and vim Tamar that takes Doris from the big band era onto the silver screen.
3: Yeah, I think it probably was. She had tried to get into Hollywood a couple of times and people weren't really interested. I think maybe they had too many blondes like Betty Hutton. They had their blondes all sort of in a row and they had Judy Garland who could sing and also did comedy and act, obviously. But then uh, getting to the end of the 40s, there was just something about her, the way everything crystallised for her. So she sang Sentimental Journey and that became the, the track that all the troops came home to. Her voice was maturing and she was getting a bit more confident. She was a bit older. She'd gone through the first marriage and a half. And then Warner Brothers scouted her and brought her in. And what they did first very smart. They put her into musicals where they didn't have to do very much to translate her band persona into a movie persona. But she took to it instantly.
1: It's almost like she had a photographic memory for continuity. Yeah, exactly like
3: that. And also she was she was very natural, and she was hailed as a star after her first movie, and that just doesn't happen. You know, people are always being discovered overnight after they've been around for years. Well, she was she she'd been around for years, but not in the movies and and she was very, very quickly a, a an audience favorite but also a critic favorite. and everybody just kind of went nuts for her. and she was yeah, she was in in Hollywood. she was living with her mom and her small kid dating around. She dated on Reagan. can you imagine? Ah, oh. he was a good dancer, but not a good kisser.
1: Is that what she said?
3: Yeah. And um, she dated Jack Carlson, who she was in a movie with, and he fell madly in love with her. But she was, you know, she was playing the field. She was having a really great time.
1: And who else was a good kisser, though, I want
3: to know, if Ronald Reagan wasn't? So I don't think she she did say she had terrible taste in men several times.
1: And why do you think that was? Do you think that she went for a bad boy? Or do you think that was
3: just that was the world that she was in? She did tend to end up with trumpet players. The first guy was just nuts and a power maniac and he gaslit her and he you know, threw her down the stairs pregnant so she lost a kid and oh. yeah, it's, it, he threatened to kill her while they were driving in a car. He took a gun out and pointed it out and then eventually did kill himself like that in a car. Oh. So he was he was a very troubled person and, and she was very lucky to get away from him. Yes.
2: If her life, if her real life, Katie, is so dark, so horrendous, I'm wondering how she manages to portray such a sunny persona all the time. Oh, my God, that 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 is acting. That That is is acting. serious acting chops.
1: Yeah, that's a good point, Tamar. Do you think she was just trying to escape from her life, really, by losing herself in this other persona?
3: Well, I think she was just a really good actor, actually. (laughs) I think um, it's really interesting. So Warner Brothers sign her up and they're not quite sure what she can do apart from sing. So they put her into a series of just very bouncy standard musicals. But I think it's very interesting that as soon as she could get out for a seven-year contract with them, she made a series of much darker films that she had control over. Ah. So the minute she gets out, her last film with them is Young at Heart with Frank Sinatra, where he's a horrible, horrible person, and um, she's married to him, and she has to try and make the best of him. And you, know, you can see she could draw very much on personal experience there. But then she makes Man Who Knew Too Much, um, which is all about you know a tortured marital relationship and having your kid kidnapped.
1: Is that the one, is that the Alfred Hitchcock one? Yeah, that's right,
3: yes. So, where, um,
1: And that's a bit odd because she's there with Jimmy Stewart and she's, it sort of almost seems like she's cast against type because she's there with, you know, kind of serious plot and sinister aspects.
3: Yeah, but if you look at her, her work, actually, she did quite a few dark films and she's always really excellent in them. The, the one she made next was Love Me or Leave Me where she's back with Jimmy Cagney and playing almost a kind of, it's a biopic of uh, the 20s singer Ruth Etting, but she's playing almost a version of herself because she's married to a man called Marty, as Ruth Etting was, and he's a bit of a gangster and a no-good, as her own husband was, and he he slaps her around, and she tries to become a star. I think that's probably her best ever performance, but her fans didn't like it because it showed her as somebody who was prepared to basically sleep around to get where she was going, and drink, and, and be lewd, and that wasn't the Doris Day... By the late '50s, that they wanted to see, so she got some some familes saying, You shouldn't, you shouldn't be drinking on film. You shouldn't be this kind of person. Her team, her her managers, did think, no, we've got to put her back into the kind of sunny version.
1: Oh. I think
3: if she kept with that, that would have meant the end of her career. But luckily for us, Pillow Talk came along and ah, gave her that talk. second wave of her career.
1: I watched Pillow Talk recently, and uh, there's uh, there's a lot of levels going on there because first first of all uh, by the time she made that movie i gather she was in her mid to late 30s and uh she's gorgeous you know she's flawless and she's starring opposite the equally gorgeous and flawless rock hudson and uh she's supposed to be this uptight prude i mean kind of a girl about town but and then there's uh rock supposed to be this hetero studly dude and uh of course the layers come into play where uh, you know, in real life, he wasn't all that interested in women. And uh, and yet they had this this chemistry. Can you
3: delve into that a little bit? She said once that they looked like a couple were supposed to look, which is very interesting, isn't it? You know, she fits right underneath his chin. It, she's blonde and he's dark. They're both perfect, perfect looking. You know, you've seen the the Barbies they did of them. It's, you know, it's not that difficult to see them as Barbies because they yeah. are both so physically perfect, tall, slender yes gorgeous 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 but you know she has this this long run of unhappy marriages and and he's not interested in women but the gay bits the gay jokes which we could see as homophobic were put in by him
1: no really
2: yeah 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 is that another way of him disguising himself because it's katie it's such a strange part in the film where a man who is in real life is gay who can't come out because of the social mores at the time is playing a stud in the film and then has the stud in the film has to pretend to be gay
3: yeah it, it makes it easier to bet i mean interestingly in the in the follow up they really up the ante so in that one she explicitly is a virgin she sings at one point is this the night that love finally defeats me
1: oh
2: Defeats her. In a negative way That's a of, bit
3: of a bummer. Yeah. I'd like to be defeated. Well, no, no. She's she's happy about it. She, no, she's very happy. She wants to sacrifice her virginity on the altar of his vanity. She wants to.
2: <laughs> Do you think they enjoyed playing those roles then, Tamar? Do you think they enjoyed... Because I'd been thinking the two of them would be trapped and they'd be thinking, oh, my God, the irony here. You know, I'm a totally different person to the person I'm having to portray on screen. But maybe they just had fun with it. Maybe they were like, we're the ones that are in on the joke.
3: Yeah, I think I think if you watch the films, you know they're having a great time. They were really good friends and they're really relaxed around each other. And, yeah, they they could put in lines or add them. They once, in the middle of filming um, Love Comeback, Come Back, they had to stop filming for about an hour because they just kept looking at each other and laughing. And the, the crew were standing around going, come on, guys, you know, be professional. Yeah, 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 yeah. She had a really silly hat and they're, per- they're pretending to be kissing on a beach. You know, it's a sound studio in Burbank and they've got fake sand and she's got this ridiculous hat on. They had an amazing time. They had a great
2: time. See, now, Katie, that would be playing... All those little clips will be playing over the, the, the closing credits, wouldn't they? That's all that happens in films now. Yeah, the bloopers, for just, sure. Just to keep you sitting there. Yeah the, yeah, the The fact that there's this levels thing you talk about, Katie, it's so true about everything about Doris's life, it seems. So one of her most famous songs, Kesa, her, when I was just a little girl, I asked my mother what would I be. That song... When you see it in the film, when you see it in The Man Who Knew Too Much, it's a bit, well, it's, it's not a bit dark. It's really dark, isn't it, that she's lost her child or yeah, something? Yeah, well, she's,
1: or... si- she's singing it out to the child so the child can hear her and, and, and be reassured that she's there. I mean, it, yeah, it's very, uh, it, it, it has a lot of um, suspense built up in, into it.
2: The other th- weird thing I, th- I think about with that song, right, Doris would never have known this, probably never appreciated it. But Que Sera is a massive football terrace anthem. Because if you win a cup, if you win a cup semi-final and you go to Wembley, you stand there singing Que Sera whatever will be, will be. We're going to Wembley. <laughs> that's all thanks to Doris.
3: Thanks to Doris. What I think is really weird about that is that the it's really not the kind of thing you should sing if you're a football fan. Whatever will be, will be. That's not really very kind of no, you know, dynamic and positive, is it? <laughs> You're so right. It is. It's very whatever. Yeah. OK, we're going to
1: lose. But eh. yeah. <laughs> well, after that, I need to collect myself for a moment. So let's take a break for some ads.
4: This is the story of Whitney Houston, of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchence, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince.
2: It's a new podcast series.
4: About how they died, and what we're still talking about them so long after.
2: It's like nothing you've ever heard before.
4: That feeling.
2: That feeling. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app.
4: And subscribe now.
1: How did she make the transition from these wonderfully sunshiny popular movies that she ended up doing a series of in the 60s to her television career in the late 60s because especially back then wasn't it a little day class say for a movie star to pop up on television
3: i think it was the reason she did it she never wanted to do tv was that her third husband her manager had um signed her up to it spent the money and promptly died Cad. so she was obliged to do it she didn't have the money to pay it back she had to do it but i think it's this is one of the things i really like about her was that she went into it and he'd set her up i think this has got to be kind of spite, marital spite he'd set her up in the show as a widow with two adorable moppets and a big fluffy dog and a gruff old uncle to keep away anybody who might be a suitor and doris does a series of this and she thinks "Eh, and if i'm going to do this i'm going to do this so she moves (laughs) her character doris martin to san francisco and of course, the dog can't come and the uncle can't come. And eventually she gets rid of the little kids as well. <laughs> and then she can just be you know, a kind of bachelor girl about town. And she goes out with very nice men and people start cropping up. So she goes out with Peter Lawford. All these stars make kind of cameos. I think that's a sign that TV is being more accepted. So all these Hollywood stars who kind of drooped a bit start turning up. Interestingly, uh, she had an affair on set with Patrick Neal. And she used to go to places they had to go to kind of hidey holes outside, um, wherever they were filming and occasionally she'd wear a dark wig and people always knew it was her. She can't she can't really do illicit. But he had her have a, a boob job. What? what? I told you it was gonna get dark.
1: <laughs> <Doris>. <laughs> I didn't I didn't have that on my
3: bingo card. There you go, you see. And you can see she's on um she's on the Johnny Carson show wearing a denim three piece. And no bra and he practically says it's nice to have the three of you on the show and and she's kind of proud of them she's also kind of pulling her cardigan and she, she'll pull them down and hide yeah. them and then she'll talk and get animated and they'll pop out again it's it's quite difficult to watch now but <laughs> it, again it just shows you you don't know who doris day is you think you know doris day you don't know Doris.
1: that's interesting i would just offer as a sidebar i i have noticed that women who get breast enhancements are quite disengaged from their body, like because if they really were your your own large breast, you wouldn't be f- sort of flancing around with them. but when you know that you've just paid for them to be stuck on your front, you are a bit like, yeah, sure, you want to touch them, you know, your you're, new
2: handbag in it sometimes yeah,
1: it's like a new handbag
2: yeah.
1: I don't know i'm I'm speculating I haven't had it done yet. never say never. and
2: neither have I, Katie. I don't know if you guessed from.
1: Oh, you are looking quite uh, voluptuous, (laughs) but maybe not in that way. So speaking of voluptuous, uh, Tamara, I'm interested in the fact that she didn't hitch her wagon by the late 60s to this burgeoning uh, new cinema movement that was happening in America because she had an opportunity to be in The Graduate and she turned it down. What what went on there?
3: I think that would have been an interesting um, career move for her. I think she found the script um, offensive and she didn't like the way that the old woman was was treated as a kind of, you know, uh, an opportunity to learn new life skills and then be thrown away.
1: And this was the Anne Bancroft, the Mrs. Robinson role we're talking about.
3: Fascinatingly, it wasn't going to be Dustin Hoffman and her, which I think would have been interesting. It was going to be Robert Redford. So that completely does away with the whole Jewish thing, doesn't it? And it makes it a lot more kind of...
1: Yes, it completely... And Redford was such a pretty boy back then because I remember seeing him in Barefoot in the Park with Jane Fonda. So, yeah, that you wouldn't have had that same kind of power dynamic that you had with a nebbishy little guy like Dustin Hoffman. Yeah,
3: absolutely. Yeah, I love all those kind of, you know, she was nearly in this and she was nearly in that. She was nearly in The Sound of Music, which I watched the other day, and I was thinking, yeah, I don't think she could have done that bit. I don't think she would have done... She could have done the bit the kids.
2: The Nazi bit.
3: <laughs> yeah, I don't think Doris is a nun, though. I think, you yeah. know... How do you solve a problem like that? No, I don't see Doris as a moonbeam in your hand. I just don't.
2: There's another tender here, Katie. I've just realized I'm overexcited about yeah, this, yes. right? <laughs> Doris Day is the second lyric in Billy's magnum opus. The eighth one is Joe DiMaggio in the, yeah, you know where I'm going, don't you? Okay. Simon and Garfunkel on the soundtrack when they're doing Mrs. Robinson uh, also sing, where have you gotten Joe DiMaggio?
1: Oh my gosh, I'm getting out my whiteboard now. What? I'm getting out my dry erase markers. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of connections. And there is a completely bonkers bananas connection to a serial killer as well, getting into the darkness. Can you talk us through this? This is through her son, Terry Melcher.
3: So Doris's son takes her third husband's name and um, becomes Terry Melcher. Then he drops out of the limelight while he's at school and college. And then he comes back into um, California life in the 60s. He's part of the, the kind of Beach Boys Gang of, of handsome young men about town. I think they were called. I'm sorry to use this word. The Golden Penetrators.
1: Oh mm. my goodness! That's not aged, is it? I I, w- I wonder what they were known for.
3: <laughs> yeah, um, football skills or something. I'm quite <laughs> sure. Anyway, so um, he became a record producer. And he was a um, he could sing and he also uh, wrote songs. Clearly, he wrote "Move Over, Darling," like I said, and he produced some records for his mother. But he was also kind of going around town scouting out other talent.
1: He worked for The uh, the Birds as well, he produced The Birds, is that right?
3: Yeah, that's right. Um, but he was also a talent scout and at one point he met one uh, young Charles Manson. What? Yeah, Charles Manson could sing and, and quite fancied himself having a, a music career and reaching millions through the power of his voice. But there was something a bit odd about him, a bit off. And so, you know, he was trying really hard to get a record deal and he met several people and Terry, to begin with, you could see that he had some kind of personal charisma, but it just made him feel like, no, actually, I don't want to pursue a thing with him. And so Charles had, had tried, apparently, with lots of people to get him to sign him. And I think Melcher was his last choice. And he, Terry stopped ringing him and just didn't call him back. So the plan was to go and reap revenge on him by killing him and his mother, Doris Day, at ah. the house that Terry owned on Cielo Drive.
1: This was up in the in the Hollywood Hills. Is that right?
3: On the Hollywood Hills, but Terry, lucky for him, had rented the house out to Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate. That's incredible. Because of the the awfulness of the mass murder and the the fear that this created in Hollywood, Doris had a had armed guards for the next year. Of course.
1: I knew that um, Charles Manson was also in with the Beach Boys and he had befriended Dennis Wilson, who let Manson and the Manson family have free run of the house. And in fact, there's a a Manson uh, song on one of the Beach Boys albums. So in fact, he got a little further with the Beach Boys, but that is just bone chilling. I mean, I know after the Manson murders, uh, that that was kind of what people now call the end of the '60s, because all of Hollywood, and you know the the hippie fringe, stopped being so uh, naive and you know peace and love, and a little more aware of the the darkness around. What's what's really
3: terrible is that the movie magazines had had really celebrated Doris when she arrived in Hollywood, and they were they were the ones kind of promoting her. And then they they kind of turned on her because she she got really ill after Calamity Jane and didn't want to talk to them for a while, but by the time we we get to the 70s and or the, the late 60s and this happening, they used the the Manson murders to kind of to kind of promote Doris, but also in such a, a way they're obviously going for no publicity as bad publicity, but they were you know they were saying things like, oh Doris is horror when she finds out about her son and the Manson gang, or Doris is upset to learn about her son and the hippie killings, which implies that Terry's involved in them rather than uh. was the intended victim. They both had to go to court and talk about it, and it must have been extremely traumatic for them, but the, the press was not kind.
1: Yeah, it's almost like a little preamble to those you know freaks you hear today, like the Sandy Hook truthers, like people who hmm. deliberately ignore the reality just to spin a, a far more salacious tale. So, Doris uh, changed tack by this stage, and she she became a little more private as an individual and turned her attention to critters.
3: Yes, that's right. She used to sponsor Doris Day's Spay Day, where she would pay vets to stay open and you could take your pets to be neutered there. And I think she was just really upset at all the kill shelters. Oh. And she was she was constantly adopting animals and and you know, if you went to her house you came back with your cats or a dog or a horse or something you know, you'd drop in for lunch and she's like I've just got this amazing wonderful bulldog would be perfect for you uh, another one
1: <laughs> it does seem that people who have had a lot of trauma in their life uh, tend to retreat uh, into animals you know that kind of unconditional love you see that. With Tippy Hedron uh, And Bridget Bardot, yeah.
2: There's a, there's, a, there's a heart-rending line, isn't there, Katie, that Doris says at some point, she just says, bearing in mind everything we've heard about what her life was like, she says, animals have never disappointed me. No. Oh.
1: Well, I bet animals have disappointed other animals, but we don't speak <laughs> their animal talk, so we don't know for
3: sure.
2: <laughs> I feel that, has there been um, a proper biopic about Doris.
3: No and I would so love to do one please somebody who's listening uh, engage me to write one, I've got it all worked out in my head.
2: It's, it's such an incredible story, it almost feels you know when you can just take a couple of chapters of someone's life and you can blow them up into a into a film in their own right
3: I think the contrast, sorry to interrupt you, I think the contrast between what we assume we know about her, this kind of persona of, of bounce and, and cheer and blondness and and you know apple pie and, and happiness and the actual story so none of that was true. none of it was true. and it didn't relate to her films and it didn't relate to her life, which is so particularly interesting, because yeah, usually a star persona comes either from the life or from the films, but this didn't come from either, really. I just think the contrast between the way she was presented and the way she actually was would have been so interesting if we could capture that and, and put that into a movie. But I constantly think who could play Doris apart from me, obviously, and I'm a little old now. <laughs> who could play Doris? Did you get Taylor
2: Swift you in just, that role?
1: No, no, they had Taylor Swift earmarked for Joni Mitchell, but Joni wasn't really happy about it.
3: Oh. no, see Taylor Swift would, would continue the the idea of her being bright and shiny. You've got to have somebody who isn't bright and shiny
2: and Tamar for 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 Billy Joel as he's growing up in that post-war world, I was going to say that Doris was inescapable, I, but I feel that's sort of mean to Doris now because I don't want her to feel inescapable. I've got I feel a warmth to her that I didn't before. But he would, he would have seen, in that era, he would have seen any number of Doris Day films. Would he? he would have heard K Sera Sera. He would have heard Move Over Darling. She's in his life.
3: Definitely. And, and she, was, she was the biggest star in the world. I think one of the things I particularly want to do in this biopic is give, give, give the world <laughs> back an awareness that she wasn't just another Hollywood star. She wasn't the Hollywood star. She was bigger than Marilyn. She was on more covers of more magazines. She was in the press all the time. There's a, a Life, um, issue of Life magazine in 62 that says, when Doris Day puckers up her lips, the touch is felt in Senegal and Sweden.
1: Wow.
3: Yeah, it's very intimate, isn't it? It's a very kind of, you know, se- se- seductive and sexual image of her. And she was you know, an incredibly beautiful woman. You know, she, you could always see her cycling around uh, on, her, on her famous bicycle, cycling around Beverly Hills, and going to a deli, and she ate tongues. That was one of the things. I found it really interesting investigating her persona. Food is a real thing. She's either described as food, like she's you know, she's got butterscotch hair and a and a you know pecan pie smile and she's wholesome. or she's just yeah. seen she's seen as eating stuff constantly. She's always eating. She'll have enormous portions of, you know, steak and potatoes and bread and salad and ice cream and apple pie and coffee. And then she'll go off and, and never gain a pound because she's just acting and dancing and singing so much. And bulimic? No, I don't think so. But I think she probably just, well, I think she just was so active. She'd go home from, you know, seven hours filming and she'd play volleyball or swing or both.
1: She sounds incredibly unneurotic, you know, like someone who has a hearty appetite. That's very, that's taking a lot of voluptuous pleasure in the world. There is something so life affirming about her. And, you know, the fact that uh, the pucker of her lips is a kiss all the way from Sweden to Senegal. And beyond i mean that that kind of that is a glow that everybody's getting warm from
2: and whatever she's doing tamar it's clearly working because she has an extraordinary inning. she's 97 when she finally dances her way off the stage 97
3: yeah i did think she'd make it to 100 yeah he disappointed i was a little bit yeah i was interviewed on tv and I was holding it together and I was thinking, you know, talk about this and I was sad, but it's gonna help me together. And then they play K and cut to me and I'm going <laughs> oh.
2: If you had to sum up Doris Day's legacy, Tamar, what would you say?
3: Um, I'd say she left us a body of work, both uh, audiovisual and strictly audio, which is remarkable, which needs to be recovered in full. And we should all go out immediately and try and consume as much of it as possible. So we get away from that Doris Day always plays a virgin, two-dimensional image that we have of her, because I think she was was a really great star, and she was probably a really great person, and we owe it to her as a great person to recover her legacy in the round. She just not got her due. She's not properly recognised as the best. That's what I'm fighting for.
1: Well... Thank you so much to our Doris Day advocate, Dr. Tamar
3: Jeffers McDonald. Thank you.
2: That was so much fun.
1: That was so great.
3: I, I just thank you so much for letting me talk about Doris, as I could. Yeah, as you can probably tell, I can do this all day, and it makes me very. <laughs> I don't get to do it all day, so it makes me very happy for having that. So, thank you very much.
2: Which which Doris Day film should I watch tonight? Pillow no Talk. Okay.
3: It's just sublime. And then tomorrow night you can watch Love Come Back. Okay. Oh yeah. All right. Enjoy.
1: Tamars made a compelling case for Doris Day's inclusion in this song. I mean, Doris Day second lyric in We Didn't Start the Fire. So she's she's right up front. You might even consider her a bookend of Billy's view of the twentieth <laughs> century. Do you think that she is a bookend, or is she just simply a pamphlet casually leaning against the bookend that is Harry Truman?
2: I think she is an entire library. That's what I got from Doris. Because there's so much going on there that I had no idea about at all. All the ways, well, the stuff about her that we didn't know, the juxtaposition of her and these other figures from post-war history. Yeah. Like, do you think Billy, like, obviously we're spending a lot of time on each of billy's lyrics arguably more time than he
3: spent you know
1: i think you've hit on something there i i don't want to cast aspersions on billy's scholarship however i think that we are in possession of the footnotes he's perhaps a little bit better with the headlines yeah and for that reason i would suggest to billy because he is listening that we should all get together and you know make one big brain that works well I think he could learn a lot from us. Yeah,
2: Billy, just give us a call. You know, we're easy to find on social media. Drop us a line. We'll get chatting and we'll see what we get to.
1: Yeah, we can squeeze him in.
2: Yeah. So you happy Doris is in, Katie?
1: I'm happy. Um, I have a suspicion that she would have made the cut no matter what because Doris Day, uh, you know, very kinetic name, it, easy to rhyme... Um, So I think she would have made it. But I do think that looking at the body of her work and the depth of her talent, which is kind of easy to write her off because, you know, oh, she's just happy and girly. No, she's a really amazing velvet-voiced singer and such a deft actor. So I think, yeah, I think her inclusion is justified.
2: And we're only two episodes into this mad crazy adventure, Katie. Hmm. I'm liking it. We've gone from Harry Truman to Doris Day. We're going to do Red China next.
1: Oh, my gosh. I You know what? These two, this Doris Day chat and the Harry Truman chat, those were almost like appetizers yes. for Red China because Red China, how are we going to cover that?
2: In, it's massive.
1: It's I mean, the country's big. The topic's big. That is a whole concept album in one episode. But, you know, you've made a case for the fact that Doris Day is an entire library of information. So, so far, I'm cool with Billy's choices. I feel like I can approve and endorse his message.
2: So that was episode two of We Didn't Start the Fire. If you liked it as much as we did, leave us a review, tell your mates, download it, subscribe from all your usual podcast places. And do you know what, Katie, my final takeaway from Doris? Tell me. I'm going to show Pep and I'm going to show Vim.
1: I can see it. I need sunglasses.
4: Crowd
2: Network. A place... Where you belong.
4: Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world.
0: conflicted a history podcast is available on spotify apple or wherever else you get your podcasts i hope to see you soon hello everyone